Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Scott Poling. It's one of the most famous portraits in all of the world, and it's right downtown Chicago at the Art Institute. It's actually been in their collection since 1930, and it was really part of a, uh, an art competition. And the guy who painted it took third place, and, it's, and he won 300 bucks. It is a, a portrait depicting farm life in Iowa, and it's actually one of the most parodied uh, pictures of American pop culture. And it's called American Gothic. Here it is. That's it. Yes. (laughs) See what I mean? (laughs) Uh, Actually, here's the real picture. Grant Wood uh, painted this back in 1930. And it is actually a picture of his sister Nan and their dentist, Dr. Brian McKeeby. That's who that is. And uh, most of us have seen this, this famous painting and we're familiar with it. But there is a lot there that you don't see. And and we typically glance right over and we don't notice. And and it takes a little deeper study to more fully appreciate this work of art. And you may say, well, what's in there that I don't see? For instance, the signature of the artist is hidden in Dr. McKeeby's overalls. The seams in the overalls mirror the shape of the pitchfork. The print on Nan's apron mirrors the print on the curtain. And, and everything is prim and proper in this entire painting except one wisp of Nan's hair underneath her ear. The brooch that she's wearing is Persephone the, of Greek mythology, queen of the underworld. And that may take into a, a, account the black clothing and the shut window and the somber faces giving it a funeral feel. The shape of their faces mirror the shape of the window and everything in the picture, just about everything, is elongated. Stretched out, the steeple, the lightning rod, the siding on the home, the roof of the barn, the posts of the porch, the stripes on the shirt, their faces, the window frames. And the plants that you see in the background are mother-in-law tongue and beefsteak begonia. And may say, well, who cares? They're the same plants in a former work, the exact same plants in another painting he did called Woman with Plants. And it's called American Gothic. Why? Because of the Gothic window that's top center. I want to talk to you, though, not about this portrait. I want to talk to you about another portrait. It's not found in a museum. It's found in your Bible. And we've seen it many times. We've seen this scene many times. We seem to know it very well. But too often times, we just glance over the details. And we miss the things in there that the artist wants us to know. And what he's trying to teach us. And the portrait that I want you to look at with me today is a portrait of Jesus. It's his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday. And I want you to look at that portrait with me found in the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19. And in Luke chapter 19, we're going to study this more deeply and we're going to grow in our appreciation and we're going to see some, one of the events, only there's very few events that are mentioned in all four Gospels. The triumphal entry is one of them. Jesus has just warned the people to be ready for his return. And he's taught them on the parable of the talents of the, of the master who went on a journey and he returns. 
And he holds his servants accountable for how they've invested his money. And and, and he says, to you who've been good, more will be given. To you who have not been wise in investing what I have given you in this life, even what you have will be taken away. And so I want you to look at this portrait. I want you to look at this picture and follow along as I read in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Verse 28 of Luke 19. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their coats on the colt, put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. We look at a familiar portrait, a familiar scene, and and I want you to be drawn into it. I I want you to walk along with those disciples. And, And I want you to see some of the specifics of this picture, but from maybe a different angle you're not used to. I want you to see it from an angle of worship. And I want you to focus on worship. And I, and I want you to see worship in different ways. And study worship that we see in the lives of different people. And, and may this be used of God to grow us in our worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we study this scene in his life. And the first thing that this portrait of Jesus teaches me is this. To worship gratefully. Say that with me. Worship gratefully. In verse 28, he's going on and he's going up. He's going on and he's going up. He is not backing down and he is not backing away. He is going to conquer sin and he's going to conquer death and he's going to conquer judgment so that he can save my soul. And that's what he's doing for you too. He's going up. He's going on. He's doing this for you. He's doing this for me. And every single step he takes, he's proclaiming you're worth it. He's saying, you're worth dying for. You're worth loving in this life. You're worth loving for all eternity. Please don't ever question God's love for you ever again. Please don't question your worth ever again. You are worth dying for. And he's not going to back down from saving your soul. And he's not going to back away from saving your soul. And he goes up to Jerusalem. And on the surface, Jerusalem seems or looks like it would be pretty exciting. It's swelling in numbers. It's a time of celebration. It's Passover. It's a big party. It's commemorating the freedom of of Israel out of Egypt. It's It's July 4th for the Jews, people. It's their freedom. But Jesus, entering Jerusalem, 
it's anything but exciting for him. You need to understand, this, this is a hotbed of hatred he is entering into. The religious wolves run in packs in this city. With their eyes glaring full of hatred and their mouths spewing slander. Their minds are fixed on murder. Jerusalem offers nothing but pain and suffering and death for Jesus. And he goes up and he goes on for you. He's told his disciples in Luke 17. First he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's what Jerusalem holds. Rejection and suffering. Luke 18, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. He'll be scourged, that's whipped, and they will kill him. Jerusalem is not a pleasant place for our Lord. And he goes up and he goes on. And he's doing this for you and he's doing this for me. He knows his blood will be spilled. Some of you here today, you can't even look at a needle. You look at a needle or you see somebody taking blood and there, there's no way. I, I want you to get this. He knows he's going to be beaten and whipped and tortured. His flesh is going to be pounded with a mallet and spikes. And that is how they will take the blood out of him. And he goes up and he goes on. And I am remem- reminded that I need to worship so grateful to my God. This portrait of Jesus teaches me next to worship confidently. Say that with me. Worship confidently. Because God is in complete control of everything and everyone, everywhere, at all times. And so I can worship with a confidence. And he approaches Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. And I want you to look at these locations with me on a map so that we know what's going on here. Jesus has traveled from Jericho. Jericho is 17 miles from Jerusalem. He's approaching Bethphage, that means house of unripe figs, and Bethany, meaning house of Ananiah. He comes near to the Mount of Olives, and there is a mountain range that runs north and south for two and a half miles, located east of Jerusalem. And Olives is the middle mountain of those three peaks. It's 2,660 feet above sea level, and it's directly across from the Temple Mount. And the Mount of Olives is very important in Scripture. This is where Jesus will ascend into heaven after the resurrection. That's found in Acts chapter 1. This is where Jesus will return when our Savior and our King returns to this planet. His feet will land on the Mount of Olives. We're told in Zechariah that his feet will stand there, and the Mount of Olives will be split in middle from east to west. So this is where Jesus will arise into heaven, and this is where Jesus will return. Now, I want you to notice the Lord is in complete control. He gives specific instructions to the disciples in verse 29 through verse 31. Go into the village, find an unridden colt, untie the colt, bring the colt to me, and answer the owners of the colt. Not knowing all the details, not knowing what's going on, they go ahead and do it. And I want you to understand, Jesus knows there is a cult, the location of the cult, that the cult is tied up, that the cult has never been ridden, and that there'll be question about the cult, and he knows the password to receive the cult. The Lord has need of it. And that's all you got to tell him. And that's all you got to type in. The Lord has need of it. Don't even ask for permission, just give him the password. So next time you're in the church parking lot or the parking lot of a store, just jump in somebody's car, 
don't ask permission. And when they say, what in the world are you doing? You give them the password. What is it? The Lord has need of it. And see what happens, okay? That, that, it's going to be a fun day that day in the parking lot. By the way, we do have a jail ministry here. It's okay, okay? You may say, okay, well, why, why an unridden cult? I think there's, there's a few different reasons. First of all, it's to show that the Lord is in charge of his creation. No one in their right mind is going to get in an unridden cult. And the one who calms the storm can ride a wild colt. And animals submit to the sovereignty of God. How much more should you and me if a wild animal does? Interesting note on unridden colts. They don't react very well to unfamiliar situations. Like putting somebody on their back for the first time. They don't react well to loud noises. And you've got an entire crowd of screaming people running in front of this colt, throwing their coats down. I want you to understand what's going on here. And this colt will take Jesus right into Jerusalem. Why this colt? I think it shows that he is king of kings and lord of lords. You say, well, a king would ride an incredible horse, this this beast, this strong steed. Not kings in Israel. Kings in Israel rode horses in time of war. They rode rode colts or mules or donkeys in times of peace. And Jesus is the prince of what? He's the prince of peace. The Lord, I believe, also is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble. Mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Every single detail of prophecy is fulfilled, just as Jesus promised. He promised in Matthew 5, 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. How much is accomplished? All. Jesus misses nothing. Jesus is in control of everything. Isn't that good news? Jesus misses nothing in your life and Jesus is in control of everything in your life. You can worship with confidence. This portrait of Jesus teaches me that. It also teaches me to worship sacrificially. Say that with me. Worship sacrificially. They go and untie the colt and they say the Lord has need of it. And in verse 35, they bring it to Jesus. And so the owners of the colt, untie it, let it go, give it over, it's yours. It teaches me to do whatever he asks and give whatever he wants. I think that should be our attitude toward the king of kings. Don't you? He's the king of kings. I need to do whatever he asks. He's the Lord of Lords. I need to give whatever he wants. Do whatever he asks. Give whatever he wants. It's called sacrifice. And I have a question. What does Jesus want from you? What is Jesus asking of you? Honestly, is he asking for your time to serve him? But your time is all tied up in things that have nothing to do with God. 
Is he asking for your resources to give to him? But your money is all tied up in things that have nothing to do with God. Is he asking for your spiritual gift that he gave you when you received him by his Holy Spirit to be used for his glory? But you've taken your spiritual gift and you've tied it down. You're not using it for him. What is he asking of you? What does he want from you? Give it to the king and unleash the cult. And let it do the will of God for which he's planned it from the beginning. Good works he's prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's why he's created me and that's why he's created you. Unleash the cult. Release it. Untie it. God has been asking maybe through people, through his disciples. That's what's going on here. Your time to serve him has been asked. Your money to give has been asked. Your spiritual gift to be used has been asked. Involvement, sacrifice. For the glory of God, would you untie that thing? And give it to him. And serve him. And love your king as he deserves to be loved. That's what I see when I look at this portrait of Jesus. I also learned to worship reverently. Say that with me. Worship reverently. They're they're throwing down their coats on the colt and they put Jesus on it and they're spreading their coats on the road. I want you to notice it's all about Jesus. That's true worship. It's not about them. It's all about Jesus, the King of glory. For all the kingdoms of this world will one day be his and he will rule and reign from this planet with a new heaven and a new earth, child of God. We're not here for long. It's all his. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about the king. And they're spreading their coats. Coats are very, very valuable. Very valuable in biblical times. It was the primary position for a possession for almost every person, their coat. Most people only had one coat. The coat was an outer garment, not their inner garment. And it was used as an overcoat during the day when it snowed in Jerusalem. Okay, maybe not. But it was used as an outer coat during the day. And it was used as a blanket at night. So it was very valuable And it was very, very important. How valuable? A coat could be taken in surety for a loan. You needed a loan, you gave them your coat as a sign that you would pay it back. That's how important a coat was. You can find this in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24. And the Mosaic law commanded that you you could hold the coat, but you had to give it back at night because it was their blanket to protect their life is what it was from cold. Do you know what they're doing? They're giving up their best. They're saying, Lord, our best is for you and we lay it out before you. We don't give you second best. We don't give you leftovers. We give you what's important. We give you our possessions. We give it because you're the king. And by the way, he's riding on a a colt, a donkey, a mule, whatever. Guess what they do in the road? They pee and they poop. All over your coat, possibly. 
and they get dirt all over it. And it just didn't matter because Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. You may say, well, what about the palm branches? Where are they? The other gospel writers mention that detail, but not Luke, probably because he's writing to more of a Gentile audience. Portrait of Jesus reminds me to worship gratefully and confidently and sacrificially and reverently and to worship corporately. Say that with me. To worship corporately. It says in verse 37 that the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God. No, this isn't a church service. But we can still learn of the importance of God's people coming together and worshiping. And it says the whole crowd of the disciples... So no one was left out. Everyone is participating. Carl and I just got back from a pastor's retreat in North Carolina. We were at the Billy Graham Training Center uh, at the Cove. There were all these pastors and all these wives. And it wasn't a church service, but we were led in worship. And I got to tell you, all of these pastors and their wives just calling out to God, worshiping him, was awesome. That's what it was. Everyone was participating everyone is participating i want to encourage you don't be left out of worship participate don't be left out don't come in late to worship get here early don't stand in silence because i don't know those songs sing them out to your king says all of the disciples. And these are the followers of Jesus. They're worshiping. These are not just the 12. This is a crowd. This is a, a big group of people. The corporate gathering of God's people in praise is awesome. And it is powerful. And I'm so glad you're here today and you didn't let a little snow keep you away. Yes, we can worship alone at times. And that's good. And yes, we should worship alone at times. But there are times to gather with God's people and sing his praise. I want you to understand the corporate gathering of God's people in praise is just a picture of heaven to come. That's what it is. Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. This is heaven. Behold a great multitude which no one could count. Can anybody count it? There are a lot of people there. From every nation, all tribes, people's tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Please understand this truth. Big gatherings of God's people on earth are just preparation for a huge gathering of God's people in heaven. And don't you forget it. Big gatherings of God's people on earth are just preparation for a huge gathering of God's people in heaven. So don't ever say, there's just too many people at that church. Because you just won't like heaven, I guess. I, I mean, I don't... This portrait of Jesus teaches me to worship gratefully and confidently and sacrificially and reverently and corporately. It also teaches me to worship joyfully. Say that with me. Worship joyfully. It's not a time to be somber when we're calling out praise to Jesus. And they began to praise God joyfully, verse 37. Meaning to be glad and to rejoice in the context as their Messiah and their King and who he is and what he's done. And 
even during difficult times, we can praise the Messiah. There's a large group of people praising Jesus right now. I don't think every single one of those people in the crowd that day had all their acts together. I have no doubt some of them are going through marriage problems and financial struggles and health issues. But it says all of them were calling out to Jesus, praising his name. Isn't that the common refrain of a Christian? Romans 5, 3, and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We what? We rejoice. Say that to the person next to you. Just make sure they don't slap you. Rejoice in your sufferings. Why rejoice in your sufferings? Knowing that your suffering produces endurance. You are going to grow strong through this time. You are going to be better for it. Yes, you are going to be better for it. The trial you are going through right now, you're going to be better for it. And endurance produces character. It's going to be taking you deep in who you are before you are God. It produces character. And character produces hope because now your faith grows as you look to God and you trust in him. God takes the bad and recycles it for our good. This is good for you to go through that trial so you can rejoice in God whatever trial you are going through and you can lift up his name in praise. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord how often? Always, again I will say, rejoice. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says the same thing, rejoice always. Aren't we reminded how to do this in the Psalms? Psalm 81.1, sing for joy to God, our strength. Psalm 95.1, oh come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Psalm 98.4, break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. That's what this portrait of Jesus teaches me, to worship joyfully. And not only that, next, to worship loudly. Say that with me. Worship loudly. We see this two different times. Toward the end of verse 37, the beginning of verse 38. Praise God joyfully with a loud voice. And then in verse 38, they're shouting. I'm just telling you right now, God likes loud worship. You cannot get away from this. So praise him with a loud voice. We just saw that in those two passages in Revelation when the multitude gather. Loud and loud. We see this in the same Psalms we just read about joy. Now we look at the rest of the same verse. Psalm 81.1. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Psalm 91. Oh come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Psalm 98, 4 and 6. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. In verse 6, shout joyfully to before the King, the Lord. There is nothing shy about praising God. There's nothing shy about it. And by the way, it's not just loud voices God likes. He likes loud percussion instruments. No, pastor, don't say that. I didn't say it. God did. Psalm 150 verse 5. Read this with me. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. So play them loud and keep playing them loud. Oh, that makes you feel really good, some of you, doesn't it? God likes loud worship. Loud praise is biblical praise. Say that with me. 
loud praise is biblical praise. That's what this portrait of Jesus teaches me. To worship loudly and to worship knowledgeably. Say that with me. Worship knowledgeably. What were they knowledgeable of? Verse 37 says this loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Why are they praising loudly? Not because of a title Jesus had, but because of the difference Jesus made. He was making a difference in people's lives. The deaf were speaking, the blind seeing, lame walking, lepers healed, dead were raised. Listen to me. Jesus is still changing lives today. People are still coming to faith in him. Prayers are still answered. Lives are still changed. We can praise him. And you may be struggling with your worship. And what that may mean is that you need to take a little bit of time with God and start remembering all that he's done for you. You know all the tough things you're going through and you've been telling everybody about everything, how hard it is right now. That's not going to lend itself to praise. You know what's going to lend itself to praise? When you start counting your blessings. When you, when you get your laptop out or your computer or you get your pen out and you write it in a notebook and I want you to start listing out everything that God has done for you and how good God has been to you and the answers of prayers that God has given you and all of the sins that God has forgiven you of and all of the love that he has showered down upon you and stop looking at everything in life and how bad it is and horrible it is and dark it is and start remembering all that God has done for you and start igniting a fire and praise in your heart that your God is good and he's always been good. And by the way, this isn't even about your own life. This is about the miracles they'd seen in other people's lives. Then you know what I want you to do? I want you to get into a community of believers because some of you are all by yourself and you're so lonesome that you're not fellowshipping with other Christians. And you need to get in a life group or, or a Bible study or, or a Sunday school class and you need to get with other believers and share what God has been doing and you need to have testimony time and let it ignite worship of your God who is good. That's what this portrait teaches me. It also teaches me to worship scripturally. Say that. Worship scripturally. Verse 38. They're shouting scripture. They're shouting the Bible. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want you to understand that scripture is an important part of worship. God's word is an important part of worship. And again, they're shouting it. They know their Bibles. The better you know your Bible, the better worshiper you will be. The better you know your scriptures, the better at worship you will be. This is a messianic hymn of praise, Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of God and worship of God go hand in hand. The word of God and worship of God go hand in hand. Listen, the greater understanding we have of the written word, the better worshipers we will be of the living word. I'll say it again. 
the greater understanding we have of the written word, the better worshipers we will be of the living word. To put it another way, worship grounded in the word of God is worship that will most glorify God. Worship grounded in the word of God is worship that will most glorify God. And and there's worship songs that are out there and they have a great sound, but they have bad theology. They're more style than truth. Praise God, we didn't sing those kind this morning. We sang good songs based on scripture. Know your Bible. Worship well. Now, the truth of this scripture, what is it? Look at verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is king. He's the promised Messiah. He's the anointed one of God. He's God's representative on earth. And then he mentions peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. This is Luke. At the beginning of the book, he mentions peace and glory. And at the end of the book, he mentions peace and glory. At the end of his life on earth, it's peace and glory proclaimed by crowds of disciples, proclaimed as he enters Jerusalem to die. At the beginning of his life, in Luke 2.14, we read these verses. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. See this? These bookends of glory and peace and peace and glory. The end of Jesus' life on earth, it's peace and glory. At the beginning of his life on earth, it's glory and peace. At the end of his life, it's proclaimed by crowds of disciples. At the beginning of his life, it's proclaimed by multitudes of angels in the sky. One when he's about to die, the other at his birth in a manger. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Jesus brings peace. No one else can. A peace like none other. I will never forget when I was 17 years old, falling on my face in my bedroom in Marmora, New Jersey, calling out to God to save me and asking him to forgive me of all my sins. I never knew a peace like that. Not in all my life. If you're here today and you've never experienced the peace of God, I encourage you to call out to God. He will forgive you of all your sins. He will save you of all your sins. That's why he came to die on the cross for you, for me. You may be here a Christian today, and you have not had much peace in your heart nor in your life. You've been trying to carry stuff on your own. I want you to understand, you need to give it over to the Prince of Peace. He'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You don't need to be anxious for everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes what? All understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Christian, he's your prince of peace. Would you give it over to him? He's peace, is who he is. He's peace in this life. He's peace for eternity. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I can have peace with a holy God, because I'm not holy. 
I can only have peace with a holy God because of Jesus who took my sin. Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. My sins were paid for on the cross. Your sins were paid for on the cross. That's the only reason you can have peace with God. Because God became a man and died for you. To rescue you and save you. You may be here today and you have never called on this God to save you and forgive you. I want to encourage you to do that before you leave today. Come to know the Prince of Peace. And let him save you. We learn about peace. We're also told about glory. And Jesus brings glory. His entire life was for the glory of the Father. John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. In John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Wow. Jesus is God. This portrait of Jesus teaches me to worship. And he teaches me to worship willingly. Say that with me. Worship willingly. Verse 39 and verse 40. Look in your Bibles at those verses. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. We can't stand the sound of worship. We can't stand the sound of praise. We don't like how it sounds. We don't like how loud it is. We just don't like this worship of Jesus. And Jesus' response in verse 40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Worship willingly. There will always be unwilling participants in praise. There will always be those who are unwilling to listen to worship. And by the way, oftentimes they will be religious people. These are very, very religious people. They are religious leaders among God's people. You can be a religious leader and not a true follower of Jesus. You can be very religious and not a follower of Jesus. And that may be you here today. You need Jesus, not just religion. You need him to save you. Some very religious people don't like the sound of worship and complain about worship. Why? Because it's all about them and not about Jesus. They're focused on themselves instead of on Jesus. And sometimes that's why you and I struggle in worship. Because we're so focused on us. Instead of focused on our God. And who he is and what he's done. Focus on Jesus. If you are to enter into worship. Focus on him. And not yourself. They tell Jesus, stop. Rebuke your disciples. We can't take any more. And Jesus says, oh, right away, let me tell them to stop. Oh, I don't think so. Jesus is about to teach them fighting true worship is fighting a losing battle. You fight true worship, you fight a losing battle. So don't fight worshiping your God. Enter into worship. And don't hold back your praise. And let's learn not to focus on ourselves, 
but to focus on our God. And Jesus tells him no, and he adds this. Look at what he says. This is his way of saying no. I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I'm not going to stop them. I'm not going to rebuke them. I'm going to let their praise continue because I will always be praised. That's what Jesus says. He's God. He will always be praised. And he adds, the stones are going to cry out if these become silent. So if, if not by people, then by inanimate, non-living objects of my creation. So in other words, to be dumb as a rock is a compliment. To be dumb as a rock is a compliment when compared to a human who refuses to worship Jesus. No matter how religious they are. I would rather be dumb as a rock and worship my creator. I'm reminded of these words written 794 years ago. St. Francis of Assisi, 1225. May we with all creation learn to praise our creator. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. A portrait of Jesus that teaches us about worship. What do we learn? To worship gratefully, confidently, sacrificially, and reverently, corporately as we come together, joyfully, loudly, knowledgeably, scripturally, and willingly. What a beautiful picture. What a wonderful picture. What a powerful portrait. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit at harvest.church.